0: Welcome in to another edition of the Time Podcast. Sekou Smith here in Atlanta. My main man, John Schumann's in New Jersey. John Hart's behind the glass. And a wild, wild Wednesday night around the NBA. The Orlando Magic spoiled Jimmy Butler's Sixers debut. Dwayne Casey gets the monster homecoming win in his return to Toronto. And it was all overshadowed like normal by LeBron James, scoring 44 points to pass Wilt Chamberlain for fifth on the NBA's all-time scoring list. To help us discuss these storylines and break down our whole lot more let's bring in our guest today former Hawks GM Wes Wilcox you know him as a GM I've known him for so long I, I mean he's been in press rooms 20 years it seems like doing all sorts of things around this league Wes how you doing man good to have you joining us and I'm curious even in your current situation as a quote-unquote former GM how much basketball do you watch and because and, I think people don't understand just how immersed in the game you have to be to stay current man how much how much of the NBA game do you still watch on a daily basis?
1: Well, thank you. It's great to be with you guys. That's about how much time we spend in, in media rooms. You know, it's that's the fun stuff when you're out there kind of grinding <laughs> away, learning the league. But, like, how much how much are you watching now? I mean, every night, you know, every morning, three, four games, whatever you can fit in. Um, now now you, you start to trend a little bit away from the NBA just because you feel like there's a college game or two you want to try to catch in and catch it you know, a morning or an afternoon. But, you know, you usually try to catch one or two at night and then, you know, everybody DVRs and we record, we record them. And one of the benefits of being a, a former GM is you have plenty of time to watch a ton of basketball. So that's, uh, we've been watching a lot.
0: Yeah. What are your, what are your initial thoughts on how the Wolves handled Jimmy Butler's trade request and ultimately, you know, trading him to, to Philly, getting him out of the Western Conference? You know, how does a, a move like that affect, the entire league and the trade market in, in particular in terms of who else might be on on the verge of getting dealt or who else might be in, in the market to make a move now that a, a big move has been made.
1: Yeah, it's unusual for a trade to go down, you know, prior to December 15th when most of the players signed, not all the players, but most of the players signed in the offseason um, are eligible to be traded. And there's always, as we know, right, the prioritization of players, the first domino to fall, obviously, you know, oftentimes triggers you know, other players to be kind of opened up to be traded. And so a player of this magnitude to be traded this early, obviously the request starting right before training camp. But it's all about, you know, setting your expectations in one of these trades. And it's it's hard when it becomes public from a front office perspective. And you hope that this is a deal that's, you know, good for both. Good for Philly and that they get, you know, an all-NBA type player in his prime. And Minnesota is able to add you know, two quality rotation players to their current team that may may fit better with their kind of young core in Wiggins and Towns. So, so you hope this one's good for both. And, um, you know, it's interesting. Minnesota's won two games since the trade. And, you know, Philly, I think they're up big last night, 16 with about, you know, 10 and a half to play in the game. And it was an unbelievable finish. Uh, and they gave it away there at the end. So it'll be, it'll certainly be interesting to watch. Philly's going to be a, a really interesting dynamic with, how their team's all going to fit together, especially their new big three.
2: Hey Wes, from an analytical sp- perspective, you know, we sort of learn a lot about teams in the first 20 games. Like we can look at the standings in the first 20 games and see, uh, say the 16 teams that are in playoff position and know that like 13 or 14 of them are going to be on average in playoff position come the end of the season. So like, is it sort of the same thing on in on the inside and our and teams now starting to come to the realization of what they are and who they are? they are, we're a little less than two weeks away now from the one quarter mark of the season where every team has played about 19 or 20 games. How much significance does that sort of part of the season have on on a a front office as far as learning what you are and what what you need to do going forward?
1: Yeah, John, I'd say a lot, you know, especially for the teams that maybe their expectations aren't in line or aren't lining up with, you know, with their results. You know, two teams that jump out. Now, Washington has won a couple of games here recently, but Washington being a tax team, high payroll, high profile, and to this point in the year, you know, really struggled because of, you know, who knows what the internal factors are, but certainly the defensive side of the ball, you know, and they just haven't shared the ball. So, so a team like Washington, for sure, you, you're starting to get a little bit concerned though. You get Dwight back and, you know, you win a couple more games
2: and then a team and like Cleveland in the conference. <laughs> yeah, and,
1: and you're in the Eastern conference. <laughs> um, and then a team like Cleveland that comes into the year with the clear expectation, or at least that's what, you know, the messaging both right. kind of internally and publicly was that they were going to compete to win. And you know they've had a major shakeup of course and obviously the injury to Kevin Love but Kevin Love's not going to make the difference from from where they are now to being like a real you know middle of the pack playoff team in the east and and we've seen this when a great player leaves a team you know and none none more, none more recently than lebron having just a massive impact on their direction so and then from the rest of the league you know you're trying to get a sense of who the buyers are who the sellers are and where the dominoes are going to fall. And we've already seen the big one in Jimmy fall. And so now it's, you know, who's next that you might be able to add to your team. And, you know, for a team like Philly, going back to them, you know, they're going to, this new roster balance is going to be really interesting. You know, the the third best player of a trio oftentimes has to sacrifice. We see this, you know, Chris Bosh did it in Miami with Wade and LeBron. Kevin Love did it in Cleveland with Kyrie and, and LeBron. Harden did it. Now it was early, but Harden came off the bench and yeah. Did it with Westbrook and Kevin Durant, and even Clay Thompson. Clay Thompson is like the perfect number three. I can't think of one in history that that is better than Clay because he's so efficient. Doesn't need the ball and can 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 allow Steph and KD to have it. And then Draymond's like also the perfect number three or number four, however you want to say it currently on that team. And so, you know, who is, how is all of this going to impact Benson? Um, and how is it going to impact Fultz and, and the need to add shooting to that team? You're going to see it probably more with, you know, Landry Schammett playing and Houston trying to maybe you know, enter the, the trade market for one of these teams that may be underperforming, that may be a seller. You know, it, it, there's been a lot of speculation about Philly buying and Philly certain, certainly going to need more shooting. And then that leads you to, you know, how, how is Simmons going to be impacted? Because you know, the ball is going to be with both Embiid and Butler. So this is a super fun time of the year the run up, you know, that first 20 games and then into the trade deadline.
2: I thought it was interesting last night, you know, Brett Brown sort of like to pair starters together like as far as substitution patterns their starting lineup together played only 10 minutes but then he likes likes to have like two starters on the floor at one time and I thought it was interesting that the two Sixers that played the most together last night were Simmons and Butler which I would have thought you know you separate them but basically Butler was on the floor for all of Simmons minutes and and Butler played maybe an extra minute or so um, without Simmons, and I thought that was kind of interesting that the two primary ball handlers you would think were on the floor together most instead of staggered. But maybe that's just a one-game experiment, or or you know, uh, uh, just trying to get them to to learn together early on in the in their time together, or if it's if it's sort of the plan going forward.
1: Well, no doubt this is going to be an on-the-fly experiment for Philly and their staff as they try to you know integrate a player of this magnitude in, you know, when games really matter. And so all that stuff is probably going to be worked through. Um, and this is a great challenge. You, 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 you mentioned a great, a great point in, in the challenge to the coaching staff, like they're going to figure out how to try to maximize their group and their rotations and their lineups. And so this will be, you know, this one is going to be fun to watch.
0: Wes, I'm, I'm curious, you know, we we spend so much time focusing on the on-court mechanics of how a team works, but from A front office perspective and for the people charged with managing a roster today, tomorrow into the future, how difficult is it when you have to factor in the sorts of things that the Warriors are going, have going on right now with Draymond and KD? And that's an extreme case. We're talking about one of the best teams in the history of the league, but even on a daily basis for a front office group, how do you, how delicate is that balance of managing what's happening on the court and, and keeping that aligned and then trying to make sure you're you're doing all the right things to manage the off-the-court environment that these players are working in.
1: Yeah, Seku, you know how large of a, of a job that is. When you start to layer in, you know, family, friends, media, agent, you know, career path, upcoming events like free agency kind of layered into all this, mm-hmm. it, it's a massive challenge. And that's why, you know, having a great coach and great stability in your ownership is such an advantage. And that's why you see these franchises that win continue to win. And Steve Kerr's obviously done a phenomenal job. Bob Myers in their ownership group has really committed to keep this to keep this run going. In a way that, you know, there's a lot of speculation of how much they were going to be willing to spend to keep this thing together. Mm-hmm. And and they've really spent and they have two great leaders. And then Steph Curry is, I mean, I've never been around Steph um, other than Kent Bazemore's wedding last year. <laughs> and uh, um, But, but you know, you just watch him and, and you can just see his joy and how much he brings that group together. And so my guess would be this this will pass in, uh, in Golden State, but, but, it, but it's a real thing. And they're real team dynamics and it's emotional, it's raw. And my gut is that, you know, they'll get through this. And this is probably more about time and delivery, you know, time and place and delivery, you know, how all this happened in, in a very public setting and then how it was said versus if this was a conversation behind closed doors, that was a concern, and delivered kind of in like an empathetic way, we, this this probably would have gone over in a much different way. <laughs> right. um, but Golden State's probably going to be just fine. Yeah.
0: And, I, and I think, Wes, I always tell, you know, friends of mine who are like, man, you know, they, they watch the games and assume that 48 minutes is, is it. Like, you know, you go to work, mm-hmm. you're on the stage, for, you know, and then that's it, it's over. And I'm like, man, that's that's just such a small piece of what an NBA season entails, you know, in terms of all of the logistics, all of the managing of different things that goes on. Do you think the job, the front office job now is even more difficult than it might have been, say, 10, 15 years ago because of all the other things you have to keep? keep a finger on in terms of, you mentioned it, you know, the families and the, you know, the agents, the media and social media and all this other stuff that didn't exist the first time you set foot, you know, in in an NBA organization. Yeah. I'd say the
1: biggest change, it's hard to speculate as what it was and the stresses of, you know, any generation, because I'm sure during that time there were stresses that were, you know, equally challenging as to what we're dealing with today. However, the one major difference that we've seen is social media Yeah, and, 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 and that has had, you know, ripples across generation, this, this new generation for sure. And everything seems to be just more openly shared. Everything seems to be a little more public. And so I don't know if that leading to, you know, more of these pub trade requests because players are sharing are used to sharing the rest <laughs> of their lives. Why wouldn't they just share this part of their lives? And so, so that has created a dynamic on top of all the other things that you mentioned. Um, or that we've talked about that is, is very new. And it's a massive challenge. And so now there's more interest around it because there's more information. It's more public. Now there's more media. The media does a great job of building relationships and you know kind of telling the story in a way that we probably never heard before. And so that part of the job is really a new dynamic. And I will say in in the two most recent situations in in Houston, kind of with the mellow stuff and with Golden State, with this Draymond uh, and KD incident, the way both organizations have handled it with their GMs being available and addressing it, Mm -hmm. whether whether you like what they said or didn't like what they said, just the fact that, these organizations are taking it on, are talking about it openly. Like, uh, you got to you gotta give both Daryl Morey and Bob Myers credit for, for how they've handled this because I think they've taken it head on and that's probably the best way to handle it. Do you think
2: there's something – we talked about this on Monday. I think there's something missing in the Carmelo story, though. Like, yeah, he hasn't played well and they haven't been good with him on the floor and he's not a great fit, but, like, what was – the breaking point to where he's no longer with the team. Like what was it that went from, okay, you're playing behind. I mean, is it, is it, you know, is there something internal where somebody said, you know, this guy, we can't, we can't do it, deal with this. Is it something with him where he can't accept playing behind, Somebody named Gary Clark in the rotation, <laughs> or the potential. Like, did they say, "Hey, we, there might be a game where you don't play"? Like, you know, Michael Carter Williams is now being has been DMP like six straight games, but hey, Michael Carter Williams is on the bench cheering his teammates on, whereas Mello you know, is now not around. I said the same exact thing as you is that give credit for the Rockets for for Daryl talking uh, to the media. But Daryl and D'Antoni are both saying, hey, Mel's catching too much flack for this situation. You know, he's not he's not to blame for everything that you know, for our whatever five and seven start or whatever it was at the time. So, like, well, what? Well, why isn't he there? You know, that's my, my my question. Like, why isn't he doing the Vince Carter thing, where or the Dwayne Wade thing, where okay, I can I'm not who I am, but I can still play a role and the Rockets as much of an issue as he he's been. They should be able to still find a couple of moments where he can contribute. You know, he should still be available as an emergency guy, even if he's not a regular part of the rotation.
1: Yeah, so this is another, like, really interesting. You just laid it all out. But going yeah. back to the summer, it, you know, it was a curious signing because of style of play. Both D and Tony and, and of course, kind of like the... Houston Rockets sterile style of play. And you know, you got a ball holder, mid-range scorer who's still a, a very competent scorer, maybe not as efficient, but just doesn't really fit in their style of play. And now you now you add in the fact that they lost, you know, Emba Mute, they they lose Trevor Ariza. They try to backfill those positions and then early on there's a suspension and the team gets off to a rough start. And, you know, who, who would have thought that they're right? You know, they're currently 12th, and, 12th in the West. And so my gut is that there's not that much more to it other than what we're seeing. And then you add in kind of, you mentioned Dwayne Wade, that, you know, thinking about this, coming into this, this call, it, Dwayne Wade didn't fit in Cleveland. And they had to find like a... a a very professional way out for Dwayne to get back to Miami. And sometimes as players age, you know, this can be a difficult time because especially if they're not three point shooters in the current game. And so players age, they change, style plays, not the great fit. You add in a couple other factors and all of a sudden Houston's underperforming and you know what, they're probably not going to have to play Melo. My guess is they probably said, look, we're probably, probably not going to play you. His representatives probably said, let me go try to find another spot. And Houston's probably trying to hedge and protect Mellow in case they can't find another spot around the league. If they can find another place for Mellow, another home for Mellow around the league, my gut is you're going to see a nice clean exit out of this thing. And it's going to it's going to go well. If they can't find an exit for Mellow in another spot, that's going to be, you know highly respectful and professional, then it's going to be really tough. Either he's going to, you know, end up not in the rotation or they're going to end up just walking away and he's going to go home until somebody has a spot for him. And, my gut is it's as simple as that,
2: yeah, I think i I wonder with like the illness quote unquote illness, if it's just like he didn't want to have a DMP or something on his yeah. on his you know or something like that didn't want to say, but but the thing is, like last year in Oklahoma City, there were fourth quarters. let's you know he started, but there were fourth quarters when he didn't play and and um and i I think he handled that okay, you know, like so i it, I feel like still like there's something. There's some sort of disconnect here where there's a piece missing to the story a little bit.
1: Yeah, it, it's hard to tell. My gut is it there's we're probably seeing the most of it, but how do you know until until it comes yeah. out? And uh, you know, sometimes it's just the team's performance, right? And they've yeah. kind of underperformed and kind of tell him he's not going to, pl- you know, probably communicated that he's not going to play. You know, Oklahoma City for for the most part last year was still winning in those games or you know highly competitive in those games, and and Houston was on the verge of you know getting underwater here in the West from a team that was, you know, their expectations were to contend their expectation right Right. now is to be second in or first in the West. And so from, from their performance to their expectations, it may be as big a gap as anybody we've seen in the league.
2: Yeah. Yeah, Do you think, would you count them as the most desperate team right now as far as shaking things up? Um, I know uh, Miami is another in that category. Uh, Ethan uh, Skolnick wrote something basically where, quoted an exact an exact saying, like, we need to trade bad. I, I, I imagine Houston is in that category, too.
1: I don't know if Houston, you know, Houston has a top five player and then, you know, an all-time great and Chris Paul. So I, I would bet that, that Houston is not, like, in panic mode, though Houston is always one of the most aggressive teams in trade and trying to improve. But Houston only does deals that, that you know, they're going to feel really good about. Houston's not one to overpay to try to do something early or drastic. You know, my guess is, you know, not having Chris Paul for those games, they're going to steady the ship. You know, they've won a couple games here. They got a huge game tonight. Tonight's going to be fun. Right. Right. Golden state at Houston. Yeah, um, so th- this game will be a great measure, even though Steph sounds like Steph still isn't playing and you know, but my, you're going to see like a Kyle Korver who's been rumored and been talked about around the league is potentially on the move. You know, t- my you're probably going to see a Kyle Corver in Houston or a Kyle Corver in Philly yeah, or a yeah. Kyle Corver, you know, in Oklahoma City or, or one of these teams would be, you know, my gut and probably more so the teams that have underperformed a little bit. I would say the most desperate teams, like if you want to look at like the, a huge gap, it's, it's when that payroll is really, really high yeah. and, you know, a team is just kind of okay to average and then underperforming because you may not have the hope that you can, you know, you're going to kind of improve to the mean, right? right? Where, where a team that maybe has just got kind of middling expectations, but they're far below that, they may not be able to improve to the mean. And, and that's when I think you get the desperation for some drastic action.
0: It's a team that that kind of strikes me as as an odd one, Wes. And I'm thinking about, you know, depending on the organization, how do you turn the temperature down in that room when you're having a meeting with your owners in your front office and and trying to figure out, hey, we we thought we were going to be this, and we look up after 14 games, and we're 7-7 and as Utah. They came into this season with a lot of people forecasting them being a top three team, you know, Mm -hmm. in the West. Oh, they're going to be top three. And they haven't performed like that so far, you know, at, at least to this point in the season, how do you turn that temp down? Like how if you're the GM, how do you go in there and say, hey, we need to be patient? Or if you think, hey, we got to do something, like how does that conversation go when when you're dealing with owners who want a different set of results maybe than what a coach understands you're gonna get fourteen games in and what a general manager understands what you're gonna get fourteen games in.
1: Yeah. So number one, they will not panic. Dennis Lindsay is one of the most steady, patient and really accomplished executives In the league, what what they have done in the draft, especially recently, and you know, there's a lot of talk about Donovan Mitchell, unbelievable Mm -hmm. pick, right at 13. It's an even better accomplishment when you factor in the fact they traded for the pick. A lot of people talk about Rudy Gobert, unbelievable pick at 27. People don't talk about the fact they bought that pick at 27, so they traded in for both of those players. I mean, truly remarkable. And then you know, a, a guy like. Joel Ingalls kind of comes out of nowhere and has been fantastic for them. So I'd say a couple things. First of all, they're healthy this year. Well, for the most part, they're healthy. And, mm-hmm. you know, last year they had to battle through injuries and were kind of just okay. They get Rudy back. They get Rubio playing great. And they went on a great run late. You know, they're a little bit similar that way in Philly last season. You know, Philly won their last 16 to win 52 games or whatever they won. And, you know, so that means they were, what, 36 and 30? Right. at one point, which was just kind of okay. So expectations for Philly going into this season were probably a little out of order and expectations for maybe Utah going into this season with a great run at the end of the year might be a little above what they should be. But Donovan Mitchell, second year, the league probably has a better feel for him and how to defend him. He's the focal point that changes things. <sighs> you know, they've gone through a stretch where they lost a bunch in a row last night. I, I haven't had a chance yet to watch my night's game. You know they got beat by a bunch, so I'm sure it doesn't feel great right now. Yeah, losing that Dallas like that, but they have a great ownership. Getting back to your original question, they have a great ownership group that's incredibly patient there in Utah with the Miller family. Dennis Lindsay is is not going to panic. He's as steady and as measured as they come. And Quinn Snyder's a fantastic coach. And so my gut is they're going to steady the ship and they're going to be fine. But it is surprising to see them sitting at seven seven right now coming in when we thought you know this team may have a chance to be a top four team in the West.
2: Yeah, yeah I think most surprising is they they rank 18th defensively, and for this team to be you know who they aim to be, that's you know they are a, a top one two three yeah. defensive team in the league. And if you look at their numbers, it's weird. You know they they with their scheme and you know they they like to have Gobert sit back and protect the rim. So they force a lot of those shots sort of in between the three point line and the and the restricted area, and the opponents are shooting ridiculously well on those shots sort of in between. And so I, I think you you can hope for a little bit. Um, you know there might be some noise in that and that you know maybe those numbers will come down to earth a little bit but still i think you know that's the end of the floor that's been a little bit disappointment and maybe you can point to the freedom of movement emphasis and 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 that and some teams having a, a tough time adjusting on that end of the floor so we'll see they have to be a top one two three defensive team and right now they rank 18. if you look at their schedule they have you know they played played a pretty even schedule as far as the offenses they faced. They've played, you know, three games against Dallas already, three games against Memphis. Um, and either of those is a, you know, a particularly potent offensive team. So I think they should be better worth th- uh, better than 18th defensively when you look at them. Yeah, no
1: doubt. That's where they were great last year. And, um, you know, th- but it, this is so interesting because they're coming off a good win in Memphis just a couple days ago, even though you're right, Memphis isn't a potent offensive team. A couple things that jump out with the with Utah is that, The dynamic between Favors and Gobert and playing those two big guys together as much as they do, that's a unique one, especially with kind of the modern league, the way the game's being played. And I know they got Favors shooting some corner threes, but that's an interesting one. And so that may have some of that defensive impact or effect, even though last year that team late was great, especially the way Favors played in the playoffs. Um, And then two other things, you know, trying to work back uh, Dante Exum and Alec Burks has got to be a challenge for them. You know, this team is playing a lot of guys, a lot of minutes. They got a deep rotation. And so um, I know some of that's going to be by design with Quinn to try to get guys out there and, and continue to develop the team and manage both the future and the current. But certainly this team's going to have to improve defensively to be what we thought they were going to be.
0: Yeah, Wes. I was thinking you you mentioned you know we we talk about Utah's dynamic and and Dallas. The, the, you know that team came up clearly not the the you know the the team they were years ago. But I was thinking about their young talent and particularly Doncic. And what's what's the dynamic when you're. Sorting through how you select players at the top of a draft in terms of what you weigh as most important in a draft prospect. Like I was sitting there last year, like everybody else, debating. You know, is Doncic the number one pick because of what he's done at the age that he did it in Europe, or do you put more value on the fact that you've seen DeAndre Ayton and some of these other you know players here in the states? As they come through their, their one season of college or whatever it is, how do you how do you go about unscrambling that draft matrix when you're talking about prospects when there isn't a clear cut number one guy who, who makes himself above and beyond the obvious choice at that number one pick?
1: Yeah, evaluating typically comes down to the preferences or the priorities of the of the organization or of the kind of evaluator. You know wh- whoever whoever that kind of final decision maker is, and so it's some teams you know prioritize athleticism and length. I think this is part of the reason why you see a lot of these really tall, long, athletic players go very high in the draft. That are the the guys that don't pan out to maybe be as good as you know teams thought they would be, and those guys typically lack the competitive makeup, the skill set, you know maybe the IQ, and the work rate. And so my my experience was always to Kind of prioritize those characteristics: work rate, competitiveness, basketball IQ, skill level, and then a level of personal character. You know, reliability, accountability. You know, some level of empathy. You hope, but but really, it, it's about trying to balance those two. And then specifically with Doncic, like I, I thought that this kid was going to be really good. I did a draft show last year and, and said on the air that you know I, I thought he was in the top two in this draft with Ayton and him. And you know, you could have made an argument to take either one. One, I thought, mm-hmm. and Doncic just certainly lived up to it, and what you're saying is you're seeing you know he was beat up because he was maybe quote unquote not the most athletic in the current n b a could he do what he did in Europe in the n b a where the game is more athletic and and faster, and what you're seeing is you're seeing an elite skill level, you're seeing you know high level competitiveness and a great mind translate like that what to me looks like the clear cut rookie of the year
0: i'm always I'm always caught off guard too with. You know the this immediate need to grade drafts, and I know, <laughs> and I know I know that drives me. between player comps and grading drafts. Yeah. I know there's nothing that drives front office people crazier than 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 this immediate knee jerk reaction based on the first month of a guy's rookie season. And I think back to a guy like Chauncey Billups. Even I remember how many times I heard he was a bust. Or oh, Joe yeah. Johnson. How many times I had somebody tell me he was the, he was a bust, and then you look up ten, thirteen, fourteen years later; these guys are still in the league, playing at a high level. But does the front office ever outlive a bad draft? choice? I know you don't get credit for a great one because whoever drafted Lebron is never going to get credit for taking Lebron to Starco. Like that's not Jim Paxson. <laughs> Jim exactly. Paxson drafted Lebron. <laughs> You know, that's never going to happen. But if, he, if you're taking Darko, he'd be, you know, he'd go down in, in history, you yeah. Know? But, yeah, do you, can you ever outlive that? I've talked to other guys about that as well, just how finicky the, the, the success rate can be based on all these different factors that as an organization you really have no control over. How, how much a guy wants to be great, how hard he wants to work, you know, how realistic he is about what he is when he comes into the league and whether or not he's willing to, you know, swallow that and dig in. I mean, there's, there's all this other, these other variables that go into. Yeah.
1: So your, your kind of initial question is like the, the uh, Oh, I think your initial question is about the, you know, the immediate need yes. to grade draft picks. And the amazing part about this is how much these decisions change over time. <laughs> right. We, we could go here, we could do an entire podcast on just if you know how a decision was initially a quote, a mistake, then it was a good one. And then it ends up being a mistake again. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, and there are countless examples of it. One that jumps to mind right now is yeah. Buddy Heald in Sacramento. Buddy Heald's having an amazing run right now in Sacramento. Dave Yeager, that team's not getting talked about enough. Dave right. Yeager has to be, you know, in conversation for coach of the year. And I know it's early, but that team is way playing above what anyone thought they would be. And yeah. Buddy Heald's been a huge part of that. And Buddy was, quote, you know, a disappointment taken in the draft uh, just up to a year ago. And so decisions have a tendency to change over time. And that's why you hope you have... This is going back to why it's important to have a great uh, management team and ownership group that has the long view and a coaching staff that understands it takes time, you know, t- to develop these players because we're trying to draft them over the life of their career and we're trying to draft the best player over the life of their career and a 19-year-old isn't ready to play maybe. and That's, that's way pre-prime until 23 at their prime when that's when they're likely going to have their best run from 23 to 30. And so understanding that, having patience, you know, focusing maybe not on productivity, put on progress for a young player. And so, so, so yes, that that is certainly one of the parts that is really hard for a front office to, uh, to kind of live through that immediate evaluation of all these decisions. And then to your other kind of question regarding, can, a, can an organization live past it? You know, there's always, it's, there's always opportunities to kind of live past bad decisions. Um, but it, it, it typically is a result of the team performing and winning. Yeah. Um, and other good decisions that have m- been made kind of in the presence of the bad decisions. But it, it, you know, if you, if you miss on, on a great, great player, you know, in the draft, you know, like Giannis goes 15, there's a lot of, there's a lot of teams that wish they had Giannis that might not be able to live passing on Giannis. Um, and there's, you know, a lot of people so far that have passed on Donovan Mitchell. Now Donovan Mitchell is a really good player yet to be seen if he's going to be the level of like a Giannis uh, at 15, but those decisions are hard, to live past unless your team wins and you've made other good decisions in the presence of maybe a mistake because getting back to the, to the management, the ownership piece thing is everyone's going to make mistakes. Everyone makes mistakes that has has done really good jobs in the draft. And even going back to Utah, you know, Utah's had some picks really high that haven't quite worked out. You know, certainly Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert are better than Dante Exum at this point. Exum was drafted higher than both.
0: Right. That's a great point. John and I, Debate on the regular, Wes, about the patience needed in this league, and I don't know that anybody has enough of it—not just specifically on players, but on teams. And how long does it take to turn around? You know, a, a team that's trying to go from one station, one spot on the pecking order in this league to the to the next. You guys had a very specific challenge when you came here to Atlanta, and the Hawks, to me, it, it kind of got accelerated out of nowhere. I did not expect for the group that you guys put together here to be as good as they became as quickly as they did. When, when you look back at it now, in hindsight, is that one of those deals where sometimes things fall into place in your, in your position as an organization to take advantage of them? Or is it something that's maybe more serendipitous than that? It's just Sometimes you just get lucky and guys end up being better players than maybe what you imagine they'd be or better fits, even, than what you'd imagine they'd be. Because the 60-win conference finals, t- you know, Atlanta team caught a lot of people by surprise. That, that team came out of nowhere for a lot of people.
1: Yeah, no, it was, uh, you know, it really was a special run there, you know, winning 17 games in, in the month of January, not losing in the month of January, Yeah, you know, in, in a unique time in, in, in for the franchise. And really, all of that at the end of the day, and this has not been said enough, Sekou, but, you know, Danny Ferry really did a nice job of trying to balance multiple paths, because mm-hmm. um, we, were, we were looking at trades that maybe, have take, that maybe prior to building that team that maybe have taken us to, you know, kind of m- more towards a younger group investing in the future. And we were looking at opportunities during that time to maybe take, you know, to go after the higher level free agents um, that ended up going elsewhere. And so, you know, that's why it's important to, to manage multiple paths you know and and almost every team is trying to do this in different ways and that's why the middle of the nba is oftentimes the hardest yeah. like when you're a clear contender you know you know that you're trying to find just the incremental improvement to help kind of support your best players so that's kind of what going back to you know philly again like philly's now going to be looking at the incremental improvement Houston is going to be looking at incremental improvement because they already have their best players in place. And so that's a good place to be in the NBA. It's a challenging place because everyone's chasing the champion, but that's a good place to be. It's also kind of a comfortable place in in when you know you're investing in the future and trying to find the the next best player out of the G League, or you've got multiple high draft picks and you may not be winning right now, but you know you're building towards something. When you're in that middle ground in the NBA, that's where it's the most uncomfortable because you're constantly juggling the future. You're trying to manage your current team. And then when you layer in free agency coming up uh, for a lot of these guys um, and especially in the current price, like in the current landscape where free agents are just, you know, making a lot more money at the top, yeah. Um, and even that second tier is making more money. You got to make bigger decisions. And so we were that team in the middle, you know, in 2012 and started with a Joe Johnson trade and had to transition. And really, we probably took advantage of maybe a, a landscape in free agency where there wasn't a lot of money to spend. After the Joe trade, we had some money to spend and that, you know, we spent it on just on, on a number of players that ended up being really, really good for us. And it was a good run. And, you know, Bud, Bud's a terrific coach and really sure. did a great job of maximizing that group. And so it was, a, it was a special team that was juggling a lot of options, had great leadership from Danny and, you know, great coaching from Bud. And, you know, it worked out.
0: So oftentimes that's all it is, man. It's just right people at the right place at the right time in this league. You never know yeah. how it turns out. Um,
1: yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. I, I will say to mm-hmm. that team, though,
0: it was really interesting.
1: You know, Paul Millsap ended up with the Hawks, because we were engaged in another conversation around um, another trade mm-hmm. that we knew we, we were able to figure out what was going to be made with Utah. Um, it was a Golden State, Deidre Richard Jefferson trade. And you know, we were kind of able to tell Paul and his representatives that, hey, look, we think this might be coming. If this, if this comes, if this trade happens between Golden State and Utah, you're going to have to be renounced. Because they're going to have to release your cap hold in order to take those two players in. If that happens, we're going to be here for you. And that that the next day it happened exactly as we thought it might happen. And that you know we were fortunate that Utah made that decision and Golden State made had to make that decision. So then we were the beneficiary of you know obviously a a, a great great
2: player in Paul. Are you guys uh, ready for a trivia question? Always ready for Uh-oh. trivia.
0: Wes he, he he pulls this out all the time at the end of the end of the show Wes just to to make me look bad and then make our guests look great because they get the answer right and I'm I'm still like google trying to figure it out. <laughs> all
2: right. So all right so LeBron passed Will Chamberlain Chamberlain on uh Wednesday night to uh, move into fifth place on the all-time scoring list. Now with with LeBron's move to LA, five of the top 6 uh scorers in in and six of the top 8 have played in NBA history have played for the Lakers. Right. So my question for you is what other franchise have three of the top 10 scorers in NBA history played for? (laughs) So in total, the top 10 scorers in NBA history have played for 17 different teams. And there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven of those teams that multiple guys in the top 10 have played for. Lakers being, you know, six of the top 10. I'm already
0: confused. You said you, that question so long. So
2: there's another franchise that there, so there's top 10 scores in NBA history. I'll, I'll go, I'll go. There's Kareem, Carl Malone, Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, LeBron James, Wilt Chamberlain, Dirk Nowitzki, Shaquille O'Neal, Moses Malone, and Elvin Hayes. Mm-hmm. Six of those guys have played for the Lakers. There's another franchise that three of those guys have played for. Let me see.
1: It. I mean, Boston jumps out right away. But no, only one, it, and
2: only it's one, not, and it's only Larry
0: Bird. Yeah, Shack, no, Larry Shack Bird's Shack's not in the top it, yeah. ten.
2: Yeah, the only one, the only player in the top ten in in and in, in all time scoring that's played for the Boston
0: Celtics is Shaquille this O'Neal. This is always a trick question, too. By the way, Wes, it's always like
2: and
1: and, and John, I'm I'm with Seiko. I need you to ask the question like a fifth time.
2: <laughs> all right, <laughs> top ten, top ten I'm players. In <laughs> <laughs> time top ten players all time NBA scoring Kareem Carl Malone Kobe Bryant Michael Jordan LeBron Wilt Chamberlain Dirk Shaquille O'Neal Moses Malone Elvin Hayes
1: Oh
0: it's Washington Washington, Washington Yes
2: see where it is there, the oh, guest you gets it again
0: while well, Seku's sitting here scouring Google trying to figure out uh, <laughs> Michael Jordan
2: uh, yeah, Moses Malone Elvin Hayes yeah. all played for the Bullets
0: or. Wizards. I think we forget. Well, I, say, I, was, I never used the team Washington. name. Yeah, I never yeah, count uh, Jordan's Washington yeah. time against him either. I know people yes. are. I mean, you still
2: getting buckets, but so the other ones with multiple guys is Cleveland, LeBron and Shaq. Yeah, mm. Houston, uh, Moses Malone and Elvin Hayes. Right. Miami, uh, LeBron and Shaq. Uh, Milwaukee, Kareem and Moses. Uh, Philly. Uh, Wilt and Moses. Yeah, Moses played for a lot yeah, of teams. and that's it. Yeah, and then for so Washington and the Lakers. Yeah, Moses. Malone, <laughs> man. He played for dude. San Antonio, too. So, like, uh, that's, like, you know, it's the one. Man, it's – don't forget. He got him up. Run.
1: Run. Go for Moses. Wow, um, it's it, You know, it feels like there's a trivia question here, and not, not that, like, I'm the furthest thing from a trivia guy, but, like, who would have thought you could get somebody now, like, 15 games in the season, San Antonio, Utah, New Orleans, and Houston in the Western Conference would not be in the playoffs. Yeah. That feels like a trivia question to this point. It's, it's amazing. And yeah. Sacramento, the Lakers, the Clippers, Denver, and Memphis are all in.
0: That's crazy. Let's let's hope it's not a trivia question in mid-April because it's going
1: to be, gonna be uh, NBA
2: Armageddon. Then you'll definitely have some panic. Then you'll definitely have some panic. We're two weeks from that 20-game mark, and I think Western Conference teams, like, if you aren't at at least, like, nine wins in the Western Conference through 20 games, like, you better start thinking about, you know. I mean, obviously, you can turn that around, but uh, as I said, like, the standings at 20 games is very close to what the, what you is. know, the playoff teams at 20 games are very close to what the twenty yeah. the, the playoff teams will be at the end of the yeah. season. Yeah, it's going to be interesting um, to watch. So, two weeks from now, we're going to have – we can have some more serious discussions about <laughs> – uh, teams that are, are or are not in playoff position. Yeah. We didn't even talk about play. the Lakers.
0: Exactly. I mean, exactly. Which they, is they, a fascinating thing. They, they're in the midst of what I think could be doing what I expected them to do this year, which is I didn't think the West was particularly strong. Everybody else thinks, oh, the West's so great. I'm like, it's, it's deep and balanced, but I don't know that the – I think it's the Warriors and everybody else. Yeah. And therefore, the Lakers have just as good an opportunity to climb into Western Conference standings as anybody. Portland has shown us this year that they're very capable of being a team, you know, like that Denver early on has shown us. Oklahoma City was underwater, 0-4 to start, and are now back mm-hmm. in that top four mix. So it, you have no idea who rises up between it. I say Christmas. Christmas is, Christmas is always my test. I look up at the standings on Christmas Day and say, who's in position to keep going up and whose trajectory is is maybe going in the opposite direction.
1: Yeah, no doubt. It's it's going to be it's going to be a lot of fun. The Lakers are going on a three-game trip or about to start a three-game trip that's really important for them. Orlando, Miami, Cleveland. Um and you know, they've been playing as I agree with you as kind of what I thought they could they could be. Yeah. And and the West I agree is is also not quite as top heavy as uh as people thought going into it. So yeah.
2: It was a great opportunity here for the Lakers. We thought Utah and Houston were probably two, three and two or two and three in some order, and they've been uh, – Less than that right. so far, yeah. Yeah.
0: without question. Sure. Yeah. Wes Wilcox, appreciate you taking some time join us, man. Always good to pick your brain, you know, all that knowledge you got hanging out up there, man. Share it, share it, share it, share it. <laughs> Thanks, Sekou, John. It, it, it's been fun to chop it up here with you guys. No doubt, no doubt. Thanks, Wes. We'll be back Monday, of course, with a, a new show breaking out our rankings and uh, all the stuff that goes on during the weekend. Be sure to subscribe to Hang Time on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts for a new episode every Monday and Thursday, all season long. Please leave a review for John Schumann, our producer John Hartson, and our guest Wes Wilcox. This is Seku Smith. We'll see you right here next time on the Hang Time Podcast.